So as we were planning this week, one of the things that I found interesting about my new process of writing sermons or of embodying sermons, I guess it would be, is that the lead up looks very different. I find that rather than burying my nose in books, and which I do at times, which I have done a lot, But rather than spending time trying to peel through other people's words to figure out how to put together just the right words, I find instead drawn into a place of listening, a place of looking, a place of seeking with the expectation to find something. And yet even still every time as I sit down and pray, leading up into a worship service as I sit down and pray for the words to be put into my mouth and those that I should not speak to be taken out, I have a moment where I feel like I'm doing a little bit of a leap. It's like trust fall, but with no clear evidence that there's anything there to hold. And I'm reminded of a time, it was, oh gosh, about 2006 now, so what was that, 15, 16 years ago, when I worked for a summer for Outward Bound in North Carolina, and I was on logistics there. So I stayed at base camp and sent out things. For folks who don't know what Outward Bound is, it's an organization where people can come and basically have a wilderness experience. People will lead them kind of through the wilderness in different ways. And my job was to help provide the supplies for that. And while I would love, as I'm telling this story, to go back and to say it was a time when I really um, provided sustenance and providence for those in the wilderness, it was, as so often those times are, when we think we're providing something for someone else, when we're doing our due diligence, it was actually a time of my own wilderness and a time of my own experience which culminated that summer when a group of staff and I were going up to, we were going to go rappel. I was just told we were going to go rappelling. And so there was a hike and then a rappel. So for folks who may not know, maybe, (laughs) right, rappel, basically you're hooking yourself up top and you're going to drop down. And so I'm there and not quite as aware at this time of how terrified I am of heights, though that would come. And we go, and I'm with other people who are rock climbers, right, who have been guides through the wilderness. And I'm there just out of my Master of Fine Arts program, taking lots of pictures, comfortable in that space, in the dark room, watching other people have their adventures, analyzing those adventures and making sense of them. It wasn't until I was sitting up top of that, I don't know, 100-foot drop that I realized I was not as prepared for my own adventure And yet I'm stubborn, so I sat and sat and sat and did not go over that cliff. I did not repel that day. I did pick up a fear of flying after that day, which has since dissipated. But it occurs to me how much in those moments when we leap, right, when we fall, when we dive, when sometimes we're pushed by the Holy Spirit, sometimes by somebody we don't really like even, how we all have that option. We still have the option to fall sometimes, sometimes we don't. And I don't mean fall in a bad way. I mean fall in a way that lets us learn the true trust of what holds us. I wonder sometimes if I'd let myself roll face first over that rope because you had to go face first. Who wants to sit just like this and then roll? into 100 feet. Apparently, I was the only one that day who did not. But I wonder sometimes, without regret, without anything, I wonder sometimes what what pivot may have happened if I had rolled for it. I was locked in. There were two ropes. That's the whole thing, is that it's an illusion of a lack of trust. It's a trust fall, yet you are being held. 
And I wonder sometimes about that, not with a regret, but I think so much about all of the things I have learned in the time since then. And I wonder if I'd been quite as eager to learn them, if I hadn't been quite so tapped into my fear at that moment, if I hadn't been quite so aware of my impending doom of death, which was not going to come. I wonder if I'd leapt, if maybe I'd been a little more courageous in ways that as I'm learning now, my lack of courage in that moment was the exact gift that I needed because I have learned every single time since then in all of those leaps, whether large or small, that there is a victory over that moment when I didn't have the courage. There is always an opportunity to leap again. And time and again, every time and again, it is that spirit who nudges, whether in the form of someone pushing or a pulling or of me just learning that I can trust whatever it is that's holding me to hold me. The spirit is always guiding through. And as we move through this season of Advent and as we move toward Christmas, as we move toward the birth of the holy into the world in a new way, I wonder if we might be able to look at our own lived experiences through this lens. Not of regret, not of the moments when we wish we could have done more, not in those moments when we're really proud of all we did, but in those moments that see all of those things, all of those moments that form us into who we are, and bring us into this present moment so that we can take it all as the holiness that it is. Now, what does that have to do with Luke? Well, as we were forming today, as we were talking about a title, as I sent Sherry or maybe Jen a title, I was drawn to the idea of praise at the table. I don't know what that means, I thought, as I sent it, but we'll see what happens on Sunday. And what occurs to me in the Gospel of Luke, and one of the things I love so much about Luke, is the way it manages to hold this very strong focus on the lived experiences of people, on the bodies of people. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when we talk about Luke, it's a gospel that is written predominantly for a Gentile audience. And yet there's, they're being led by people who were Jews, who had an understanding of Jesus, who was a Jew. But this is breaking out into a new audience of people. It's new folks who don't necessarily have the same understanding of scripture that the Jews do. And so there's some explaining, right? There's some understanding. And yet there are also some things where you just kind of jump right into the lived experiences of people where they are. What that means is that in the Beatitudes, for instance, where Matthew said, blessed are the poor in spirit, Luke says, blessed are the poor. Luke's audience is not going to get the nuance of the law in the same way that Matthew's audience will. So the connection point for the divine is not going to be quite the same as it would be for Matthew's audience. In the same way that if I were going to talk about Jesus, Jesus will sound different to different people. For some, they will hear that is the absolute only way that I know how to understand and experience the divine. There may be others who will say, I don't understand Jesus. That is not my context, not my reference point. My experience of the divine is through another entity, whatever that may be. And there may be some also who have had such harmful and wounding words said and done to them in the name of Jesus that Jesus is not an access point for them any longer. And I'd like us to sit with that for one moment. I'd like us to sit with that for one moment because I think it's important to sit with the discomfort that there are some for whom the name of Jesus is only traumatizing or re-traumatizing. And that's difficult in Advent, right? And what does that have to do with praise at the table? And what does that have to do with our day-to-day -day life? Except that I think it has to do with the reality of where we meet people in those moments when we meet people. And in the invitation to understand that just as for the people listening and hearing the story of Jesus through Luke's gospel, 
they're hearing it with some baggage. They don't know these words. Some people may have been treated in whatever way by people who were following Jesus or by Jews, really, that it's a new language, it's a new understanding. And what it comes back to the table, though, what I love about Luke is that again and again and again, you have both these songs of praise, and yet again and again and again, the focus is around this material body that shows up in the way that Luke talks about food. Now, bear with me for a second. You may remember the story. I think we all remember the story of Luke, of the gospel as we go through, right? The, the shepherds come, right? They're there. Where is Jesus born? What's he born into? What's he put into after he's born? A manger. What's a manger? It's a trough. It's a place of food. It's a place of food. It's a very practical place of food in the moment by some people who were poor enough that they didn't have anywhere to put their child. Yes, there was no place for them in the inn. Yet, as we all know, there's always place for folks who have money in the inn. There is always room to be found for those who have the money or the connection or the access, right? This is Joseph's family's home. If he'd had money, he would have had people. He would have had folks who could put them up. These are poor people. They are poor people in very desperate circumstances. They are poor people in very desperate circumstances who are also bearing the child of God, which they know and they experience because Zechariah has then had this experience, but then Mary whose deep trust and longing knows that she is carrying within her something holy. Now, it's not really about whether or not we get into the logistics of Mary's, how Mary got pregnant, right? I want to name that, that so often within Luke, there is this miraculous virgin birth, which is important. And yet, I think it's important that we not get so caught up on the way in which Mary got pregnant that we miss the message of her song that she is singing about God, this child who is bringing forth something that will bring down the haughty, that will tear down these power structures that have taught us how to live in right relation, really in wrong relation with one another. And that the shepherds who come are ritually unclean. They're coming to some poor folks, they're ritually unclean. Nobody says anything about that because they're all just drawing together in the midst of this holy moment. Again and again throughout Luke, Jesus talks about the importance of bread, about the importance of table. When Jesus rode to Emmaus after the resurrection comes back, he is revealed to those who see him in the breaking of bread. Again and again and again, as you read Luke, and I would encourage you, read Luke in this time as we go to Advent. Look at how often people gather around the table. Jesus gets in trouble because he is sharing meals with the wrong people. He gets in trouble because he, is, he doesn't care about the right way to clean his hands or his feet or his body before he shares those meals. Jesus is breaking all of the rules, and he's doing it by sitting down at table with people and meeting them where they are, meeting them in the reality of the muck, not quite in the same way Mark does. There's not the same dirt under the fingernails here. But in Luke, Jesus is meeting people where they are in their desperation, in their hunger, not just their hunger for righteousness, but their physical hunger, their longing, their hopelessness, their despair. Jesus is breaking in with all of those moments, into all of those things. And I think the importance of holding both the table and the praise together is that as soon as we learn where we can gather at the table, as soon as we learn where we can gather to meet Jesus, which is at the table, what I think we find is that our only reaction is praise. 
And what I mean by that is that when we sit down, present with people, think about what happens when you share your suffering with someone. Think about what happens if you've ever been hungry and you've sat down and someone has offered you bread. Think about what happens if you've ever been lonely and someone sits down with you and says, I am here. There's an element within you that starts to recognize grace, that starts to recognize what it means to know that you're held. So starts, and not just by God in this esoteric spirit kind of realm. Yes, but that that is embodied through people. That is embodied through creation. That is embodied through the work of what it means to just be beloved children of God. So what I love about both the, the very down-to-earthiness of Luke and the juxtaposition of praise is that I think as we are gathered more and more into the down-to-earthiness of this world, we begin to understand that the only real response we can have is praise. I found that if I sit down at a table with people and we share a meal, even people I disagree with, if we are willing to sit down to share a meal with the understanding, the spirit moves every single time, every time. But it takes that leap. It takes that fall. And y'all, I got to say, even as I started this sermon, I didn't realize I was going to tell the story about the Outer Banks. I did not know that story was going to come. And yet, as I think about it now, I realize we are all at that precipice. We are all sitting there together on that hundred-foot drop, waiting to see if we're going to go or we're going to stay. There's not a wrong decision one way or the other. We're going to learn one way or the other. But we're each individually at that moment of deciding... Are we going to trust the holiness of God to carry us? Now, that may mean for you and some of you on your individual life, on your day-to-day life, maybe you're at a precipice moment, right? Maybe you're at a moment where you're like, I don't know what to do about this job. I don't know what to do about this life choice that I have to make. I don't know what I have to do about this move. I don't know what I have to do to care for my parents who are ill, to care for my child who is ill, to care for my spouse who is ill, to care for myself who is ill. I don't know what to do to care for all of the ways in which the despair of this world is overwhelming me. And y'all, I got to say, I don't know either. Sorry, I don't. But what I'm finding is that again and again, as I find myself, as I let myself be still, sorry, it comes to that again, find the stillness of my breath, the stillness of where I am, that I can start to learn how to trust that, learn how to trust that movement. And yet still, I'm a person. I am as human as a human can be. I human all day long. And in that humaning, I realize also I need a little more help sometimes. I need something tangible. I need something practical. Sometimes what that means, and I don't know if this is the case for y'all, but when I get really, really worked up, I've been finding lately if I start getting really stressed out or really overwhelmed, and I think maybe I want to blow up my whole life, and I don't know what that means, but it just doesn't make sense and everything is chaos, I find instead what I've started doing is just taking a minute and taking a breath, and if that doesn't help, then sometimes I'll drink a glass of water. And a glass of water, if you sit and you take a minute and you actually take the time, it will slow you down. It's really helpful also if you add a little snack right? And I'm not joking. I literally am like, sometimes maybe I don't need to blow my life up right now. Maybe what I need is a glass of water and a little snack. Maybe sometimes I do need to blow my life up because that happens too. In which case, I would probably still benefit in that moment from a glass of water and a snack. And regardless, right, what I realize is that what I'm talking about, when I talk about a glass of water and a snack, I have a very clear access point to our sacraments. And this is when we start to realize we're coming to a different kind of table when we come to a table. Because our sacraments, which were enacted by Jesus, when we talk about baptism, we talk about communion, these were things he participated in as an invitation for people to also participate in. Not because they needed to do right, 
not because they needed forgiveness of their sins. That's not what we're doing in our sacraments. But because he knew that we would need a way, a touch point, a way to kind of hold ourselves in to the steadiness that is always there in the midst of the chaos of this world. It's food, it's water. Our baptism reminds us with water that we are beloved, that we are held. Communion reminds us of the sustenance we are given within our bodies. We have a way to remember the life and ministry of Jesus, especially to remember that he did all of the things that he did in a body that was as human as yours and mine. Water and a snack. It's a touch point to communion, which then reminds me, not alone. With communion, we cannot share communion alone. Even if you're in your own house and you're like, I'm going to have bread and wine in whatever form or fashion you may have, right? If there is the intention to connect with the memory of Christ, you are there. Also, you're never alone anyway. But at some point, I think I mentioned with baptism, and this is what I'd offer for you to carry today, is that with some, I mentioned this before, that at some point in my past, I started to remember my baptism every time I interact with water, right? And when, when I talk about remembering my baptism, and when we talk about in a Reformed context, our baptism, what we mean is that we are loved when we do not even have the capacity to ask for it. That's why we baptize infants. Infants do not have the capacity to understand the grace of God. We don't either. We just get older and have the arrogance to think we do. We baptize infants as a sign that God's love is the only thing, the only thing, that we do not have the capacity to ask for that, which means that as much as I may want to fight against it, I cannot outrun my belovedness. Neither can you, none of us. But what's amazing about remembering my baptism every time I interact with water is that I start to realize how much I interact with water. So it may be a rainy day, right? And there's the downpour that reminds me that I am loved. It may be a sad, heart-wrenching day, and I am reminded in the tears that pour out of my eyes that I am loved. And then when I get into the body, it's really weird because I realize that I am three-quarters water, that this earth is three-quarters water. And then I start to think it is almost as if all of this creation was made so that we would know that we are loved, that that love that is, is all that is. And then I get to enjoy that at table with my friends. And in those moments, I am struck when I sit back and I think that I am water, that you are water, that we are holy in that water. And y'all, I don't know what to do except praise God at the very gift it is to be created. And I know in those moments that hard days will come. And I know in those moments that my heart has been broken more times than I could count someday. And in that same time, I'm able to see the breaking of my heart as a breaking open to the holiness that is within and an invitation to the holiness that comes throughout. So whether you're able to take that leap off that cliff or whether you need to sit up top for a little while longer. May you know that whether you're on that rock or held by air, that you are held by a love that transcends all that is. And may that love be enough to carry you.